Good morning. Joining me now from somewhere near Harlan, my good friend Al Bat. Hey, Al, how are things? They're finally drying out a little bit at least. You know, if um, folks, if you've been saving for a rainy day, <laughs> you're probably broke by now because you've uh, spent it on all those rainy days. It's, it's time to float alone, I think. So, yeah, it certainly has been wet. I, Does that yeah. impact the birds? Like, are more waterfowl coming around because there's more water and the, the lakes are expanding or, or the rivers are running faster, or doesn't that really impact them at all? It certainly impacts on the number that we get to see out in farm fields. Oh, true. There's just, boy, every little pond I go by, there are uh, there's some sort of waterfowl in there now. So it's it's that uh, it's good for them that way, I guess. And apparently they find plenty to eat out there, and they seem to be happy. Uh, some of the water, you know, I've been watching a um, redneck grebe that's nesting in Freeborn County, the first one uh, in recorded history anyway. And it built a nest, laid an egg, and the water rose enough that it washed that nest Aww. out along with the egg. But they went right back, and they're building another nest, and then we got uh, like four inches total of rain, and it washed that one out, but they built a oh third my. one. So That's perseverance. And I have a question. Do they <laughs> usually only lay one egg? That seems like not very many. No, they had just started. Oh, I were I, I'm I'd almost bet if they'd laid all their eggs they'd would have probably the chances of them giving up would have been a lot more had they laid a full clutch of eggs instead of one because they just kind of got started so they were still all wired to to have more eggs. So well, I'm rooting for them. I hope it works out. <laughs> I do too. They're such beautiful birds and. Uh, I've done a million, you may be a redneck grebe jokes every time I've sat there, you know, um, <laughs> channeling Jeff Foxworthy and you may be a redneck if, but they, they're just lovely and it's so fun to get to see them. And um, I see them here every year just in passage, but to have some actually nest here, is, it's beyond cool. It's just uh, speaking of nesting, Annie Madsen of Albert Lee got a hold of me and she uh, got a bird box from me, a flicker box, and she had put up, uh, she and Paul Steeler had put up two wood duck boxes, and then they put this flicker box up. So now they had something nesting in all three of them. But not what and there was, was it a flicker and, and what was supposed to be there or something different? Kind of. She had oh. <laughs> a common merganser in one, and um, I guess a lot of folks, when you put up a wood duck box, you're not thinking of common mergansers, but they nest in them as well, so they're beautiful little ducks. And she said the common merganser had four babies, and the wood ducks in the two other boxes had uh, 20 bo babies. And she was wondering if mergansers or wood ducks have more than one brood a year. Uh, as far as I know, Annie, uh, common mergansers have just one but there is a possibility of wood ducks having two. I, most of them I see have a single one, but it's certainly a possibility that they could have two. Uh, Jeannie Mortensen of Faribault was listening one day. I was talking about the catbird, uh, 4.30 in the morning. He starts singing, and I can hear him now. He's still singing, and he'll be singing it two this afternoon and I think he knocks off for a nap or gets something to eat around that time. He just he's a happy camper and he's out there singing. He's got a, a mate on the nest. He's got babies. Things are just going well. 
And Jeannie said, you brought back memories of the beautiful catbirds we had on our farm. We had an old English sheepdog who hated cats with a passion. In the spring, Shannon, that's the sheepdog's name, Shannon just barked all day and ran like crazy all over the backyard near the bird feeders. I went out one day and listened and realized it was a catbird that was meowing there. Shannon was up in, the, or the bird was up in the trees, and it was so neat. Oh, we had such a variety of birds there. It was glorious. I miss seeing all the varieties of woodpeckers we had there, none in town at all. And I'm sure she's referencing primarily the red-headed woodpecker. And I have, uh, they nest right around me here, but I will say I've not seen as many this year as I did last year. Uh, Jill Morstead of Albert Lee said, hi, Al. Jerry, Jerry is her husband and a former classmate of mine, although I'm sure he will deny that. Uh, Jerry and I have a mallard hen nesting in the crotch of one of our maple trees. This nest is about 10 feet or more off the ground. This seems like a very unusual place for a mallard nest. Is this more common than we realize, or is she just a weird duck? <laughs> we, we have a small man-made pond just a few feet from the tree, and we often have a mallard or two enjoying it. Thanks for any info you can share. Well, you came to the right person, Jill, because I am a weird duck as well, so I understand these things. Whenever anybody calls me and they say, we have this duck nesting in the weirdest place, I say, yeah, mallards. Well, how'd you know it was a mallard? Because they nest in the weirdest places. <laughs> mallards typically nest on the ground where we think of them nesting, but they will occasionally nest in trees. I will say that it is far from common, Jill, but they will do it. They just nest in odd places, but what a cool thing to see. And Jill, it's a photo opportunity, and, you know, if your uh, cell phone doesn't uh, do the trick, well, you got to splurge and get that anniversary gift for the two of you and buy a camera and take a nice photo. I'm sure you got one. Uh, somebody asked if uh, bald eagles will pick off roosting turkeys during the night. Uh, I talked on one show about along the Mississippi River where there's um, – in the bluff lands where we find golden eagles, one of their prime prey items are wild turkeys. So they're feeding on them. Golden eagles aren't much for fishing. Now, are the, so aren't they, they similar size, though? Yeah, they're almost identical oh, in size. I'm I surprised. Know, <laughs> I know a lot of things. In, oh, you mean the turkey and the golden yeah, eagle? Yeah. Oh, the turkeys are probably bigger. And the, uh, and the, the, and the eagle take, takes them off, picks them off? They sure do. Wow. Yep. Yep. I thought you were talking about bald eagles and golden eagles. They're they're the same size. Okay. No, I meant the, the, the poor turkeys. <laughs> yep. No, they'd be bigger than, because, boy, I think some of those turkeys, wild turkeys, what did somebody, they hit one with their car, and what did they tell me? It weighed 26 pounds or yes. something was the one they hit. It was a, a really big one. He said it was worth mounting if it had just uh, hadn't wrecked his car a little bit, so he didn't really care to mount it and have it somewhere in his house and be reminded of uh, the turkey that hit his car. These guys, these golden eagles, will feed on uh, wild turkeys over there. Here, um, bald eagles are probably a lot less likely to do that because they're more likely to be fishing. It. Uh, the other thing that would happen is the eagles don't hunt at night. 
so they don't swipe roosting turkeys because uh, their turkeys are roosting at night, so are the eagles, so they're both sleeping at night. And uh, for folks going into the local grocery store or restaurant, they don't swipe roasting turkeys either. <laughs> so you, all those all turkeys should be somewhat safe. Would a bald eagle love to eat a turkey? Oh, you bet. And I'm sure they do probably roadkill more than anything else. I see a number of wild turkeys on the road anymore. It seems on the freeway I see quite a few of them on I-35. So they do, uh, I'm sure they're out there eating them, and why wouldn't they? They don't get mashed potatoes with them. That's the problem. Or no gravy, but other than that, they like them. Someone asked, why are owls' eyes so big? And, you know, not to be flippant, but if they were smaller, they'd fall out of their eye sockets. <laughs> well, I guess That's I was bad. being flippant, so I apologize for that. If you think about binoculars, if you've looked through binoculars, if you have with a big objective lens, that'd be the uh, lens that's farthest away from your eyes, closest to the object. The bigger they are, the lighter things are. So if you could hold up just a, if you could barely hold up binoculars because they had such big objective lens, you would get so much light coming in there. Well, owls have large eyes because they let in more light than small eyes, and that enhances the ability to see in the dark. I think of a great gray owl that we go up north to see every year around Meadowlands, Minnesota, in the Sac Zimbog. It weighs two and a half pounds on average. It has eyes larger than most humans, so if they need that in order to do a lot of hunting. Uh, they're amazing, their ability to hunt in darkness. And, so are uh, you saying if I wanted to observe birds in the evening or later in the night, I should get binoculars with bigger lenses then so I can see better in the dark and versus in the day I probably wouldn't want them because it'd be too much light from the sun? Yeah, plus uh, they do certainly, there are certainly binoculars that will gather more light out of the darkness mm -hmm. so you can see. They should still be okay in the sun, you know, as long as you don't look at the sun. That would be the problem, so don't do that. But um, some binoculars are very, very good. They have a big field of view, so you have these big objective lenses, so you can see in the dark. And I have used the night binoculars, night vision things, mm -hmm. and they they work Kind, they're really cool, but it's kind of an odd what you're seeing out there with reds and greens, depending on which uh, which one you're using. But they they're able to gather heat some of those things, and they then um, you can see the heat coming from a little bird. I was walking with these uh, vision goggles, night vision goggles, which are different than the night vision binoculars. But I'm using these night vision goggles. I'm walking around uh, Red Deer, Alberta with a guy who I just met who said, boy, wouldn't it be a great idea to go out with these night vision goggles and see what we can see in this big <laughs> woods? And um, I said, yeah, that sure would. So away we go, these two strangers wandering around. And you and saw Bigfoot, I, right? Oh, I saw a deer, which <laughs> oh, could dear. have been anything. It was like the woods was on fire. It wow. just shocked you when you saw it. But I saw a um, bald-faced hornet nest, that looked like a, a big football was on fire in a tree. 
I remember seeing a Townsend solitaire just glowing in the dark thanks to these things. It was just one of the coolest things. And You know, we're so, everybody's so busy. We tend to say no for everything. We just say, oh, no, no, I couldn't do that. This was one of those weird things where I just said, yes, I'll do that, which, uh, you know, you just, I don't know. Folks, it's probably not a good idea to wander around in the dark of night through the woods <laughs> with a stranger. I, I will say that. But, boy, it was just one of those things. Sometimes we just have to say yes to things. And I found that usually when I say yes, good things happen. I just, and, you know, we have to, boy, I shouldn't go off on a tangent here, but my dad always said you got to trust your gut. If your gut says no, you know, or you have any uh, mixed feelings, don't do it. But if it's saying yes, go for it. And it was one of those days when I did that, and it was it was really neat. I just had the most fun. Oh, um, I'm catching up on a bunch of old questions that I hadn't got. This was um, a, a Boy Scout that was on a boat with me, and he said, how much wood could a, I should say he's a Cub Scout, not a Boy Scout, how much wood could a wood duck duck <laughs> if a wood duck could duck wood. And I told him exactly the same amount as a woodchuck, and he seemed pleased with that. <laughs> I, I have no idea with them. Those Cub Scouts, they're wonderful little guys. And some of them aren't so little. Um, a guy who, uh, oh, and I don't have his name, he was in the uh, Peace Corps, and he came back to Albert Lee for a Peace Corps reunion with a bunch of, a lot of folks from around Albert Lee were in the Peace Corps. And he said, um, I've heard about a black swan event all my life, he said, and nobody I talked to knows what it is. He said, I know what it is, but do you? And I was so proud because he asked me a question. Usually I get the questions. I have to go, well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked that question, and I just hope I can come up with an answer. If I keep talking long enough, maybe it'll come to me. But a black swan event, I knew it's an event in human history that was unprecedented and unexpected at the time. And the term originated from the belief that all swans were white. Oh, everybody said, no, there's, there's just white swans. And then there was this Dutch explorer, and some days I can remember his name, but it, I, I can never pronounce it, so it doesn't really do me any good to remember it. But he, re, he discovered black swans, in Australia in like 1697. It was right around 1700 anyway. And that was an unexpected event that changed zoology. So, and we uh, we hear in the news every so often a black swan event, something that just, it was just uh, unexpected. Uh, one of those things where nobody saw that coming. I've never heard of that either, so that's a new one to me. It, do you, you guys on the gardening, you hear from a lot of folks, I bet, about uh, earwigs, don't you? Yes, and I've been spotting a number of them again this year, and I hadn't really experienced them really too much until, I guess, last summer, and there are just so many of them, and once again, I'm seeing them, and are you saying that you're experiencing them as well? I'm hearing from a lot of people, yeah. and some are sending me photos from their cell phone. They're creepy and, uh, looking. Well, I, I like earwigs. I don't know what. They're not uh, the native. I think the European earwig is the one that everybody notices. And it must have been about five years ago there were so many of them because I visited, uh, spoke at a, uh, in a couple of nursing homes. Uh, speaking is 
is being too kind. I just go in and visit with folks, I guess, and talk to them about whatever they want to talk about, and they're wonderful people. But uh, several of them had so many earwigs. They were just everywhere, and, of course, they were concerned that they're going to eat everything they have. I know they can damage plants because I've experienced that, and so that's why they make me mad. You bet, and they like hostas. Yes, they Uh, do. What doesn't like hostas? Everything likes hostas. And so, yeah, that's the biggest thing. If, if folks, if you don't know, they're uh, they're flat, they're reddish brown, they have little short wings, but they have these pinchers on the tips of their abdomen. So on the rear end, they have these big pinchers. And that's what looks and, creepy to me. <laughs> yeah, and they can enter buildings in large numbers, and I, I probably more than anything, they're annoying. How do you get rid of them? I'm sure that's the question you also get. Yeah, and there's a number of um, things. I just take them and dump them outside. That's the easiest for me. <laughs> I know, but from know. my plants. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a number of uh, different uh, oh, sprays and uh, things that you can use. Get them from your favorite garden center, and I'm sure they can hook you up with something that'll work. I, uh, I, you know, I try to think of an airwig as a brother-in-law and just force <laughs> a smile whenever I see one and say, hi, how, how you doing? They're just, uh, somebody ought to make a movie out of creatures like this. Uh, I just think they're so interesting with that big pincher on their rear end. And um, What do they, they mainly were, use it for? Is it to get their food or is it to move or, or what's the purpose? They, they do grab things with it oh. and they will hold on to stuff when they climb up into plants. And I would guess on a occasion they will grab food. I find that they eat mainly uh, bits of plant that have fallen down in the house, container plants and things. They also eat either dead or weakened insects. So that's their primary food sources. And, um, yeah, I, I, you know, they got the name Earwig because somebody way back when, you know, when we didn't have digital devices, TV, what they had were imaginations. And somebody said, oh, yeah, those pinchers, they crawl right <laughs> in your ear there. And they get in and they pinch your brain and then you'll never be normal again. Uh-huh. Uh, they don't do that. But it's, it'd make a great movie, I think, if they did something with the invasion the a- of the atta- earwigs. Yeah, I was going to say attack of the earwigs or something like that. Yeah, and everybody became zombie-like and <laughs> controlled by one large earwig that ran the world and I thought, uh, boy, I should be writing this down. I watched a house sparrow take a dust bath. I know, where did he find the dust? There isn't any yeah, out there. Lately. He did. Yeah, it was a place where it had been pounded by the rain so much, and then it ran off, so it left this kind of dusty-like stuff behind. And they take these dust baths because dust absorbs the excess oils that might lead to feather matting. It helps the bird shed dry skin, and it controls parasites that are on their skin and feathers. So just like us, it's a, a good idea for us to take a bath, you know, every, oh, six months or so anyway. So maybe and what's that, that dry shampoo stuff you can buy and it costs quite a bit? It's called dry shampoo that you don't need water? I wonder if that's just a bunch of dust. Uh, yeah, that might be what it is. Dry shampoo. Uh, yeah, so you don't, if you don't have a source of water, it's supposed to absorb the oils, which is basically what you just described that it the dust does. So I'm thinking they just add a little fragrance to it and then they sell it for a bunch of big bucks yeah so just go 
stick your head in a dust ball. bucket of dust somewhere and see how, see if that works. That'll probably yeah. work as well. Yeah. Well, I bet uh, I'll maybe get some of that and put it out for the sparrows here. <laughs> see and if they see like if it. They, yeah, I bet they will. The um, I just got a text that somebody said you were talking about the catbird singing early in the morning. We have a robin singing here at 4 o'clock. Yeah, I have a robin here now this morning, and yesterday morning was singing at 4 in the morning. And they um, they sing that dawn chorus because, uh, oh, scientists are kind of guessing at this because how do you really, you can't ask a bird saying, why are you singing now? What's wrong well, with you? I'm just wondering because the solstice just happened not long ago. Is it because we had those technically longer days that the sun or was brighter sooner or it's longer? It's certainly a photo period or day length that causes yeah. all these changes in birds. And it was often... It's been speculated by science that the the light is too dim at 4 o'clock and you're up anyway. It's just too dim to go out and forage to find any food or do much anything else. So, you know, you feel an urge to do something. You're the male bird out there. So what do you do? You sing. (laughs) And you sing a song that will inform those within hearing that you're still strong and healthy enough to kick butt and take names so just be aware of that and that you're still in charge of your territory and potential i remember years ago i read that said potential mates are attracted to survivors i thought well yeah go figure they they want a live mate pretty much is what that said so uh, they are singing out there we they used to think that the song carried farther at dawn but now they find that if you sing at uh, noon, it carries the same distance. But mm-hmm. I would add that humans are a lot more, a lot noisier at noon than they are at four in the morning. So it's probably a little better to be heard that early in the morning. I was um, at a place, I was walking down the street, and there were a lot of sidewalk superintendents looking through the fence because they were putting up a building, and there was a a lot of those uh, yadada, yadada, yadada sounds of uh, some kind of equipment making that. And here was a little song sparrow singing. And I thought, how how loud does this little dude have to sing to be heard over all that? The gloppita, gloppita machines that's making the cement and our concrete. It just, uh, this little guy had a real challenge there just being heard. I could uh, say, well, all the other song sparrows in the area were in the same boat, and that might be true. But I would think it would make life a wee bit more stressful. Uh, we've certainly found that humans, when we're uh, we get loud sounds around us all the time, we get a little stressed out, a little nerve action going. So I'm guessing a little feathered guy, he's got the thing, same thing going on there. He just and boy, next time I'm going to Heartland, Minnesota, where do, a bird can be a bird and can be heard. Do birds get so, sore throats? I mean, if they chirp too loud, uh, can they get laryngitis like people, or is it a different function of their uh, yeah, I guess anatomy? Yeah, their syrinx is, is different. I, I have no doubt that some of them do lose their voices for some other medical reason, though. So. Hmm. Because uh, otherwise, if that were true, I would be putting Luden's cough drops out in the bird feeder <laughs> out here. Because yeah. I, I need those birds singing. I can't uh, have them be silent out there. Uh, Sigurd Olson, I spoke out in uh, North Dakota here a while ago, and I brought up Sigurd Olson, who is a, a Minnesota uh, 
writer of some repute, mm-hmm. and um, it, you always wonder if Minnesota writers will go over real well in North Dakota. But I said uh, he he wrote about listening, a listening point, how important it is to have one, and it, it's wonderful if we all can have that kind of place. Maybe it's a walk in a local park or just uh, going to the library or Barnes & Noble and sitting on one of those nice, comfortable chairs and just a place where you can listen, not only to the maybe the sounds of nature, but to your own thoughts. We all need one of those places for our uh, our good health, I guess, if for no other reason. Mine is uh, in the garden. I, I like to, you mentioned places to listen. I've oh. noticed when I'm out working in the garden, I hear so many amazing things that you don't normally notice when, of course, the, you're doing your activities of the day. But gardening out there, uh, it's just it's just beautiful, the sounds of nature. And then if I'm out on the lake, then there's the motorboat. And then you're like, oh, the ones that really bother me, though, the motorboats don't bother me so much. It's when people have boats with big stereos and they blast it. And I think, you know, if I want to hear that, I can, you know, go in my car or any place. And that's one of those things that I think it'd be sacred on the lake. Don't let them have their stereos on. That's what I would choose to say. It really carries on the water, too. Yes, it it does. And uh, I found that when I'm out in the canoe paddling along and then all these... um, and they're nice young fellas, but they have these jet skis, and they all have to rip over to see what I'm up to, <laughs> see what the old codger's doing there. There's no and and if I was their age, I'd probably be doing the same thing. But it, it's just so quiet, and then it gets really loud. And I should have mentioned the garden as being one of those places too. I don't know why I didn't, because it it's one of the perfect places to go and and think the thoughts that need to be thought. And uh, it's a good place to come up, I find walking to a good place to come up uh, with answers to those perplexing life's questions. You know, I, a lot of times when I'm there, I find myself singing in my head or out loud too. That's something that just, it just brings out the song in me. But you can sing. See, well, if I did that <laughs> and there was anybody anywhere nearby, there'd be police involved because ah. they'd think I was strangling a cat or Aww. something over there, and that just wouldn't be good. I have uh, one last question I got here. Uh, somebody said, I've noticed some Canada goose goslings have gone missing. Uh-oh. Uh, the parents had seven, and now they have three. What preys upon the goslings? Um it could be a different mon pa too that came in. I will say that, but I'm sure you're probably right. It's probably the same. Uh, Canada geese. When you think about them, the size, the intelligence, the wariness, and their aggressive behavior of the parents, boy, that limits predation on goslings. You got to be pretty brave to go out there and and tackle those guys. Are really good at what you do, but foxes, coyotes, raccoons. Mink, eagles, owls, snapping turtles, hawks, gulls, crows, they would love to take a gosling out for lunch, particularly the really small ones that just uh, just hatch. So That is it. I hope you all come to the cafe today where the food chain is missing a few links. The special is always a Heimlich maneuver and gravy is considered a beverage. And now featuring authentic leftovers with less hair in the food and real cup holders. Where the grease is good and none of the food smells like feet. Well, hardly any. Dan Egolf is a friend of mine. He lives up in Haines, Alaska. He runs a, a sports store, you know, skiing and and all those uh, birding and clothing and all those kinds of things. And 
he told me that a friend of his was going out to eat. And as this friend stepped out the door of his home, a silver salmon fell onto his lawn. Oh. And he looked up to see a bald eagle with, well, the eagle probably had butter talons. If we have <laughs> butter fingers, this eagle had butter talons and dropped this fish. So the man was going out to eat, but he didn't go out to eat that day. He stayed home and ate fresh salmon. <laughs> Uh, another comment I'll make, my father loved creamed asparagus on toast. And growing up, I didn't much care for it. We had a lot of creamed. My mom was Swedish and German, and I we just had a lot of cream things. So I ate it, but I ate it reluctantly. Then one day I was munching on it, and I liked it. I don't know what happened. Just all of a sudden, I'd say, man, maybe it was just my attitude. Maybe I killed some taste buds off or grew some new ones. It was the dawning of the age of asparagus. (laughs) Remember, folks, Heartland is well worth driving past. And thank you all for listening. Boy, it means the world. I hope you all do something wild today. Get out there and take a look at a bird. I enjoyed your company. Thank you, Karen. As always, I appreciate Tuesdays with Karen. Thank you, Al. We appreciate you, too. Until next week, happy bird watching. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.